Everyone, thanks for uh, tuning in to DeFi's. Uh, this is now going to be our fourth podcast, I believe. Yes, sir. Uh, fourth. Fourth, fourth. Okay, well, yeah. thanks, Shanif. Uh, you know, always need a, a, a little bit of a reminder here, but we're super excited to talk about, you know, fees and scaling today. I know we, we introduced the topic last week as we dove into DeFi, um, which, you know, is built on Ethereum, or it was the first use case. So um, a big part of the limitations so far have been the fees, and everyone is talking about scaling Ethereum 2.0 um, and how it can really be a tool for the masses. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, uh, please, please subscribe because we want you to be up to date with everything that we're talking about. Um, and that's just not on our website where we'll be sending out blog posts as well as the podcast themselves, just diving deeper into particular topics that we cover in the podcast, but also via Apple as well as Spotify. We're available on both platforms. And please, please, please send us any feedback that we could do to improve because our goal is to provide value and we cannot get better without any feedback. And the more critical, the better uh, so that we can, you know, ultimately do better. But, you know, Shanif and I are really excited about this. Shanif, I think, is a little bit more excited because he's an Ethereum <laughs> fanboy, as he likes to say. It's it. true. Um, it is true. <laughs> and I have, uh, you know, I was a little late to the game. And, you know, one of the reasons why I w- avoided Ethereum is the fees and gas and ultimately how expensive it was to ultimately test out an ecosystem because of the fees themselves. So, you know, really excited for this. So today we're going to break it down into a couple of different areas. You know, why fees exist on a blockchain? Why do networks get congested as it relates to, uh, you know, Ethereum and other types of networks along those lines? Um, and then ultimately, one of the things with Ethereum is that the fees are unpredictable. You don't know when they're going to get higher. You don't know why they're getting larger in most cases, unless you understand how the network works. We want to break it down. And then ultimately, you know, why are these fees a limitation for, you know, mass adoption of NFTs and gaming, particularly on Ethereum today? Um, so, you know, with that said, um, I guess let's start it out with, you know, why are there fees on a blockchain in particular? And I guess this pertains to Bitcoin even in a way, because ultimately, yep. you know, there's fees that exist across the ecosystem. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, Bitcoin has fees. Maybe it's not as broken down. Ether actually has, uh, when the guys who first created Ether, they decided to separate out the fees from the actual transactions. So it's a little bit clearer. But taking a step back, why are there fees uh, on a blockchain? If you think about it, um, a blockchain is really just a group of transactions that have been, you know, quote unquote, verified as valid transactions. And it all goes back in this case uh, to mining. Um, Now we'll talk about how mining might change in the future with proof of stake, but taking a look at how things work today, you have to have these miners on on a blockchain to validate and verify your transactions. These miners aren't doing this out of the goodness of their hearts. They're not running all of these computations and burning all this energy just because they like the the ecosystem, right? They get paid. So the way they get paid is basically they get a reward anytime that they successfully validate a group of transactions into a new block. The the way that Ether and similar blockchains have built their ecosystem is um, the miners will get a certain reward for uh, for these transactions they can decide basically to work on the highest value transactions for themselves uh, with fees. So fees act as a way for miners to um, essentially be rewarded. They also act as a way for uh, individual users to essentially say, hey, look, this this particular transaction is really important to me. I'm going to pay more so it can get validated earlier. So fees are a way for uh, the whole ecosystem to continue to operate correctly because people get paid and they get incentivized. 
Now, this is still a network, right? So you still have a limited number of computers who are mining, which means that if you have way more transactions that need to be validated than compute power available, uh, you're gonna have a backup. So there's gonna be lots and lots of backup um, and it's just gonna take longer and longer and longer for transactions to get validated, which means that for certain people who wanna get their transactions validated first, they're gonna end up spending even more money to get their transactions validated, which means there's this kind of cyclical effect where you start paying more and more and more to get your fees, uh, to get your transactions validated. And that's what causes fees. And that's why fees get so large. It's because the network just can't keep up. Uh, we'll dive a little bit more into, actually, this is the key topic that we're gonna be talking about today, network congestion fees. We'll dive a little bit more into that, um, but I'm gonna kick it back to James to talk about how this affects gaming and NFTs because he's the guru there. And I'm sure you've got a lot, of, a lot of stuff to talk about there, right, James? Absolutely. So when I first started getting into NFTs and in particular, you know, I wanted, I was very interested in gaming because, you know, ultimately emerges two things that are really interesting. Um, and it's the centralization as well as video games. And there are two, you know, the folks that historically have played more video games have been those that are more technologically savvy. Um, so, you know, ultimately it's a perfect mix to get more adoption in a way of blockchain and decentralization. You know, in a way it's, it's a more comfortable and understandable way for folks to start like getting comfortable with a different UI because the user experience is very different. You have to go in, you have to sign it with your wallet. It's not just logging into account and going from there. Um, you know, you, you pay in the form of the, the crypto. But when I started getting into it, the first game that I wanted to play uh, was Gods Unchained on Ethereum. I was super interested in it because of the game, you know, a strategy game with cards and, and pretty much everyone that is there to outsmart, you know, the other put together the best deck and ultimately uh, win. So it's more of a strategy game in the form of games. So to do this, I went in, I went to Gods Unchained um, and, you know, I got into it a little bit later. They'd already moved over to a scaling solution. Um, but even then, this was my first experience. I had to deposit Ethereum into Immutable X, which is a layer two scaling solution, which we'll touch on a little bit later. That was created to ultimately uh, combat some of these issues where it was getting too ridiculous for each transaction because to buy a deck of cards, it is about $2.99 because most games still go back to USD when it comes to pricing everything out. And across the ecosystem, they use oracles to ensure that that price stays stagnant, regardless of what token you are paying in. So let's say if you're using Ethereum, it'll always be $2.99 worth of Ethereum. Where it gets really exciting is that that $2.99 of Ethereum is then matched with a $150 transaction fee because the network is congested. So ultimately you're paying $152.99 for one pack of cards. So this is how it was before they moved over to Immutable X. Obviously not sustainable. And they even had to turn off certain functionalities of the game because it just wasn't economical any longer. Um, so they moved to Immutable X. So instead of having to ultimately use Ethereum for every transaction on the Ethereum blockchain, uh, Immutable X, you deposit Ethereum um, where you pay a gas fee up front. Uh, but then you're able to use those dollars on the ecosystem with very low to no fees um, overall. And what it does is it helps in the beginning, it helps after the beginning of paying that gas fee to be able to play at an economical price. So instead of paying you know, $150 every single time, you're paying the fee once and $150 is arbitrary. It varies by you know, how congested the network is. But ultimately where I'm trying to get at is 
for small transactions, Ethereum is it's just not workable. And you know, I've seen this in, in NFTs where you know, absolutely, I'd love to get some of these cool NFTs, but it's hard for me to just you know dip my toes in the water by you know buying a couple thousand dollar NFT. I want to buy a couple cheaper NFTs and kind of see this around. And in the beginning, I will say I was a little bit of a dingus and I wasn't looking at the fees. And I I made multiple completely unprofitable transactions that could never be profitable because no one else is going to buy it for the price that I bought it at because it is uneconomical. Um, but that's when I started getting more interested in scaling. And that's actually what drove me to Binance uh, Smart Chain because the fees are, are much lower. They have a different model. They're not proof of work. Um, but I don't want to go into that too much because Ethereum is still, um, you know, in a way, the godfather of DeFi and the godfather of this, you know, web free ecosystem. Um, but that's the primary reason why, you know, Binance Smart Chain has become so popular, why Solana has become popular and why there's a big demand for these layer two solutions with like, you know, Polygon, for example, for gaming on Ethereum. Um, but, you know, not to go into too much in that, but ultimately, you know, for the everyday user, unless you're willing to spend thousands of dollars, it really doesn't make that much sense to use Ethereum for these transactions because, you know, it, it is just too, you're paying, you know, in some ways, 100% of the cost just in being able to validate it. And there's benefits of the validation. I do get that. It's the security of the ecosystem. You're paying for the security, but it, it's hard to justify when that security for $2.99 is you know 25x of what that cost is it's it just uneconomical so you know with that you know ethereum is making some changes to ultimately move to ethereum 2.0 um which i know shanif is very well aware of uh did you have you have you staked yet on the, the I, new network i looked into it now there's still some risks with staking so i've not i've decided not to stake yet oh like the, um, the infinite lockup until Ethereum 2.0 comes exactly, up. Exactly. Exactly. And the 24-hour uptime requirements, which I could talk, we could talk about that. But no, I don't yeah, I don't stake right now. Okay. Yeah, because it's it that was the thing that always got me. It's like, okay, so you're staking this for the foreseeable future. And yeah. Ethereum 2.0, I, I don't remember what the initial launch date was, but I know it was 2021. And now yeah. it's pushed out like well into 2022. And that's the issue with you know migrating blockchains is that you know this is a Eight hundred pound gorilla that has been going for years. It's hard to just pivot and turn, and, and it's happened quite a bit. You've seen it with you know hard forks, um, and you know the the ecosystem kind of you know deviating. But you know, I guess with where we are today, and I guess this helps set the stage for why gas fees are so expensive. You know, and I know you have experience mining uh, ether. Ether in particular. A bit, so, a bit. tell me a little bit about some of the changes they made recently. Um, you know, as it relates to EIP one five five nine, and I'm probably yep. saying that incorrectly because I have a tendency to read things and then read them as I would say them without listening to anything. So I have a tendency to say things very incorrectly. But uh, I know you've done a, you know this firsthand. You know, tell tell us a little bit, and I think it's helpful because there are some similarities with proof of work. What is proof of work? And there's some similarities with Bitcoin, but why is, you know, this process a little bit different? Um, and yeah. really, how does it work? Yeah, so Ether is doing some interesting things to try to solve their scalability issues. So scalability and network fees are just interchangeable. They are, they go hand in hand. If you don't have scalability, you're going to pay more fees. Um, and James mentioned one word, which I want to define really quickly. He mentioned the word gas. Gas is what basically Ether has called its, its fees on the Ether network. Gas is paid in Ether. Um, but when you hear us talk about gas, 
there's a few different contexts that that's going to come into play, but gas in this case is going to be the fees on the Ether network to complete a transaction. So I just wanted to define that really quickly for those of you who've never heard that term. So talking about Ether now and the reason that there's so many fees, obviously the Ether uh, core team is aware that there's all these problems and scaling. And so they've tried to attack this issue in a couple of different ways. Um, the first way that maybe they, they actually didn't. So there's this thing uh, that's called EIP, uh, Ethereum Improvement Proposal 1559. This was a proposal put forward That's, that's by, the exact name of it. Thank you, thank you. I'm yeah, glad, you got I'm, it. I'm, I'm glad I know what the acronym means now. Sorry. <laughs> Developers love acronyms. So I'll tell you how many times I had to work with like a three-letter acronym working at Booz Allen and Twitter and like all these places. Uh, and then don't get me started on the developers and the government. That's just like alphabet soup right there. But, you know, anyway, um, the Ether guys are familiar with all these issues and they put forth one proposal. It actually wasn't meant to address fees necessarily, but it does have an Im impact and we should all know about it. Um, long ago, when Ether was first created, they came up with a way for uh, compensating miners. The compensation was this. Anytime you have a transaction, you're going to pay a base fee and then you're going to pay, um, uh, there was another fee on top of that. The miners will always get those fees. What this what this led to was very unpredictable uh, fee structure, like James had said. Basically, people were completely unaware how much they were going to pay. Um, the, the additional fee, if I go back for a second, is basically a fee that you can set anytime you have a transaction that you want to pay. And that's basically, if you put a lot of money into the, fee, into the transaction, you might actually have this cascading effect where fees grow a lot. So EIP 1559 came around. What they wanted to do was uh, fix a couple of things. They wanted to make fees more predictable. They didn't necessarily want to reduce fees, but they wanted to make them more predictable. And then they wanted to make um, a, a little bit of scaling uh, issues. So here's what they did. They said, look, anytime you have a transaction, you're going to pay a base fee. We're also going to introduce the concept of a tip that you can produce for miners. And we're gonna take care of uh, unpredictability in the following way. Anytime that the network gets super congested, there's gonna be a predictable amount of increase in the base fee. And anytime it frees up a little bit, there's gonna be a predictable amount of decrease in the base fee. This means that your wallet, the thing that you're holding your Ethereum and your Ether in, can now start to predict with 100% accuracy how much you're gonna end up paying, um, assuming that you use a standard tip. So what happened was, um, they added a couple of other things onto this. The miners now get the tips, the minor tips, but the base fee is burned. It's completely gone. And the reason they did that is to prevent miners from colluding on basically mining empty blocks. Because if you just mine empty blocks and there's always a fee associated with a block, you just basically make a lot of money for not doing anything. So now the base fee is burned, the miners get the tips, and what happens is the, the wallets can start to predict based on how congested the network is, whether the next sort of set of transactions are gonna be pricier or less pricey. This also has the effect of making Ether slightly deflationary because every time there's a transaction, the burned base fee um, is gone. And that means that it uh, affects the supply of Ether. So I don't wanna get, I know I've just jumped way into the details, but one of the first ways that Ether started to address scalability was by essentially um, providing this sort of approach to make at least the fees more predictable. Um, before I jump into Ether 2.0 and proof of stake, James, any any thoughts on top of any of that? Anything you wanted to add there? No, it's it, it's really interesting because you know one of the the things, and this has been the hardest part 
it's something that I, I guess I didn't fully wrap my head around. I didn't do a good job of wrapping my head around when I first started getting into, you know, the various tokens that exist in this ecosystem is the inflation that is built into the tokenomics. When, you know, in reality, there's a lot of tokens where if you buy and hold, you're losing money because it, you're, they're pumping out more as rewards for folks, you know, validating transactions. And some tokens have very high inflations. I, I think I mentioned on a previous podcast, but that's something I ran into a new cipher where the inflation rate was absurd. It was, you know, in the 20 to 30%. So I was always wondering, why does this keep going down? This is a, a really interesting area. You know, what is the deal? And I finally figured it out. And I was like, oh, wow, I, I've been waiting too long. Immediately staked it on CoinList to make sure that, you know, ultimately I'm at least keeping up with inflation. Um, so I always look, I, I find, you know, especially this is more economics, uh, but inflation is a big deal right now, just regardless in the economy. And one of the reasons why everyone loves Bitcoin is that Bitcoin is not getting any more supply. Um, it's it's finite. Um, yeah, there's still Bitcoin that's going to be introduced into the market because of mining um, and ultimately the fees that are allocated to miners. But, you know, in the end, you know, it's just going to be a transaction fee in Bitcoin paid to the miners, ultimately bring us uh, sustainability of the network. So I always find it fascinating whenever there's a deflationary mechanism built in, um, because ultimately deflation is... In a way, it's good when you own uh, crypto holdings because your crypto is going to go up in value. Um, and, you know, it, it's just it, it's a good it's nice from an economic standpoint. And I can wrap my head around it. So inflationary has always been nice, even though it's something small. You know, it does help, you know, bring to light. Um, and and can you correct me if I'm wrong? Ethereum doesn't have a max supply, does it? Uh that's correct. They actually have built in the ability to add more ether over time. So it's it's uh, from what I remember, it's unlimited. There's no max supply. But that's not yeah. something people want anymore. Like that's part of the migration. Is that it, well? I guess maybe that isn't going to go away. Well, it has to in a way change because you know we'll talk about Ethereum 2.0 and staking and and how the rewards are structured um, a little bit today, probably in the future. And I think we did a little bit last week as well. Um, but it changes everything. But ultimately, it's a good sign that at least now I'm sure there'll be more clarity on what those tokenomics yeah. can be, because that's, you know, it's always you always kind of give the benefit of the doubt that, OK, they're not going to just pump out. You know, they're not going to double Ether supply overnight. But, you know, if there's no guardrails like you can and that's and obviously it's an edge case, but I don't like I don't like edge cases because they make me uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I digress on my, you know, non-technical, you know, uh, you know, spiel here. But you know, Ethereum 2.0 has had a lot of hype, and a lot of this hype has been driven by, you know, the things that we discussed. The fees are outrageous. I, I'll say outrageous. Maybe, maybe they aren't outrageous to some, but you know, if this is truly going to be Web three, one hundred fifty dollars to do anything is absurd. Let's be real. There's still a lot of higher value. Like if I'm buying a CryptoPunk, you know, uh, NFT, okay, that that transaction value, I can live with it. But not when I'm buying, you know, this. Uh, I bought a collectible for Tyson Fury when he uh, his most recent fight with uh, Deontay Wilder is. I bought a collectible for it. It was you know 0 0.3, 0 0.03 Ethereum, and then I was like, I'm like, why do I have like no Ethereum left in my wallet? And it was a transaction fee. So that's when I like that was probably the last time I think I bought an NFT on Ethereum um, just because of my own ignorance. But, you know, Ethereum 2.0 is super excited. We've heard a lot about it. There's obviously a lot of nuances with it and how 
um, you know, they're addressing scalability um, because it, they go hand in hand scalability and fees. But ultimately, you know, if you think about Web3, we're not even scratching the surface on the number of users for mass adoption. You know, we're, I, I don't even, I looked at the numbers. Yeah, we're recently. early. Yeah, very early. It's, it can hardly, you know, in a way, it's, it's good that we're figuring this out now because, you know, ultimately if it became, it can't become mainstream yet because it's not scalable. It's, uh, it just doesn't work that way. So, you know, I guess tell us a little bit about Ethereum 2.0, um, some of the, you know, different, some of the changes that are coming in, moving from proof of work yeah. to proof of stake, um, some of the new, I guess, nuances they're adding to ultimately help with scalability and storing more data on the chain. Um, don't want to kind of, you know, go too far into yeah. it, but, you know, one of the things we've been hearing a lot about is sharding. Um, and that's a big thing with these, you know, next generation blockchains in a way that's one of the, you know, Polkadot's big things, which um, we'll talk about Polkadot later, but just for everyone here. So the founder of Polkadot, Gavin Wood, was the CTO of Ethereum. I'm pretty sure he yeah. actually, he was, he wrote the he smart contract the language. Founders, I, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, so he's, and that's part of the reasons why he started Polkadot is he saw these issues with Ethereum where, you know, it wasn't really ready to scale and the world was changing um, and various other things, which I'll go into more detail because as Shanif is a fanboy for Ethereum, definitely a fanboy for Polkadot and know way too much about something that is just starting <laughs> to exist right now. Um, but yes, yeah, Shanif, talk to us a little bit about sharding. Yeah, so sharding is part of um, maybe three or three to five sort of proposed changes to Ether that constitute what people call Ether 2.0 or Ethereum 2.0. So sharding takes the idea that today we have one single, um, let's call it line from the very first block ever created to the very last block and the same network has mined, same network has validated and mined all those blocks from block zero to the blocks that we are today. What that really means is any computer that wants to be a node on the Ether network, that wants to be a mining node, needs to keep every single block in uh, on, its, on its hard drive or on its network storage, because that's the only way you can validate a latest block. You basically have to validate a lot of the stuff that came before it. This causes a lot of backup because it just gets to be unscalable. Sharding introduces the idea of splitting the work among multiple different chains. So today, if we have one chain that makes up the entire network, part of what's going on with Ether 2.0 is they're creating 64 new chains. And these chains will now no longer have to hold the entire blockchain. Um, uh, every single miner or every single node in this case won't have to hold the entire blockchain on its uh, network accessible storage. It will basically just hold a portion of it. What this means is you're splitting work among 64 different uh, you know, groups, which means that any one uh, transaction now can be theoretically you know, 64 times faster. So that's kind of one of the things that comes into play but you can't have sharding without staking or proof of stake. So I'll have to kind of talk about both at the same time. Proof of work today. So you've, if you've heard our previous podcast, you've heard us mention probably proof of work versus proof of stake. Just to recap for you all who don't know, proof of work basically means you have to solve a whole bunch of computations in order to validate a particular transaction. Burns a lot of energy. It's slow. It's inefficient by design because it has to be hard for you to do it. And it's kind of, you know, no, it's it's a it's a good way of getting things done. But now there's a new sort of model coming out, which is called proof of stake. Proof of stake means you no longer have to solve all of these crazy computations. What you do is you put up a certain amount of your existing tokens or your existing ether to say, look, I'm gonna stake my tokens 
And anytime that you ask me to validate a new transaction, I'm putting my, my tokens up for stake. And anytime I say something is valid, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. Then if somebody else comes down the line and they say, well, no, this wasn't valid and it's proven that it wasn't valid, my tokens are gone. So in exchange for validating properly, I'll get more tokens. In exchange for you know trying to defraud the system, my tokens are gone. That's essentially staking. What this means for sharding is that now you can have people who stake their tokens on different shards and each shard will basically be um, able to make sure that the validators for each shard are doing what they're supposed to be doing. So sharding is a way for you to uh, separate the amount of work, which will actually help quite a bit when it comes to network congestion. Staking, which is part of 2.0, is actually, in my opinion, the biggest part of Ether 2.0, but perhaps less relevant for today's topic, is a way for you to get away from proof of work. There's two other things I want to mention really quickly before I kick it back over to James. So the first are, uh, actually, before I do that, James, anything you want to add on to that? No, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we know what the, the real interest behind the movement from proof of work to proof of stake. And I, and I also love the fact that you said, put your money with your mouth is because that was all I was thinking. And anytime yep. I hear it, I'm like, okay, so you're saying I need to be like, it's honesty and you're putting your money where your mouth is. And if you're going to lie, you lose money and no one wants to lose money. Um, yep. But, you know, the big thing about proof of work or the proof of stake overtaking proof of work is proof of work is very energy uh, it needs a lot of energy, a, yeah. a lot of energy consumption. Climate change is a real thing. You know, we're seeing, uh, you know, obviously we want to lower our carbon footprint, not add to it. And, you know, ultimately the proof of, the proof of stake is not as in theory is not as decentralized as proof of work because there are other ways to get around it, but it is good enough. It's more than good enough in the yeah. way that a lot of these chains are designed where it's not, purely it's not decentralized in the, in the way of proof of work but it's close enough to be considered decentralized it, it's very very near um and it helps solve you know something that's probably more important than just decentralization is destroying our planet um so, <laughs> so i think we'll take a little we'll take a little bit uh, of you know we'll a little it. bit of kick on the decentralization you know to keep the to keep the world pumping but um you know a big part of this is you know is before Ethereum 2.0 was even a thing is folks started building solutions to, um, you know, combat this. Some were built on Ethereum in the form of layer twos. Um, some are new blockchains altogether. So, you know, part of what they use are, you know, part of what exists today are rollups and side chains. Um, so, you know, that is in a way, it's a complex topic, uh, but, you know, Shanif, you know, in your words, you know, what is a rollup and what is a side chain and, you know, how do they play a part in Ethereum 2.0, but also how are they playing a part today as well, which I know we'll yeah. get to in a little bit. It's interesting because if you, you know, if today it's interesting because you've probably seen a lot of the layer two solutions that are built on rollups and side chains. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm going to explain what those are really quickly. Uh, but if you look at the Ethereum website, ethereum.org, and you look at what the core developers are saying, their positioning is that there's actually no one silver bullet to solve scaling. They're gonna need multiple different strategies in order to solve the scaling problem. The two, there's two sort of really exciting ways to solve scaling today. Perhaps the most exciting of which is rollups. And so I'll talk about rollups first and then I'll talk about uh, sidechains. Rollups are kind of interesting. And I'll actually, I read a really fun analogy today and I'll talk about it in the concept of an analogy. Remember, every time you have a transaction that's posted to the main network, you pay a fee. 
So think of rollups this way. Let's say you had a friend who loves to talk and he sends you a bunch of texts. Let's say he sends you a thousand texts one after another. It becomes really overwhelming and it's like, it just takes a lot of time because each text has to be sent individually. What happens if instead he just waits until the end of the day and he sends you one really long text? It's still gonna take you a little bit of time to read, but the network only has to send, it, send one sort of transaction and uh, it's, it's kind of relatively quicker. That's an analogy, maybe not perfect, but you can start to think of it that way. That's an analogy for rollups. With rollups, what you have are these smart contracts. Again, if you haven't heard our podcast on smart contracts, go, go check it out. You've got these smart contracts where you send a particular transaction to the smart contract every so often. And the smart contract basically just takes care of uh, rolling up or aggregating all of its transactions. This smart contract doesn't actually post to the main ether uh, network. Well, it does, but it does it periodically. So instead of doing it on every transaction, it'll wait for a certain amount of time or a certain number of blocks, and then it'll post to the main, net, uh, the main network. What happened? Um, the thing that it posts, there's a couple of different ways that it proves um, that what it's posting to the network is actually what happened. There's a couple of different ways to do this. One is called, uh, there's one sort of methodology called fraud proof. Um, and there's another one called valid proof. I'm not going to get into those today, but because um, <laughs> James is smiling, he's like, "Thank God." Sounds like a um, counting word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's they're they're interesting, but they can basically uh, with certain they're they're what they do is they basically prove that the transactions they say happen actually happen. So that's what happens on a rollup on a side chain. And so James actually, I want to take it back really quickly. James mentioned the idea of decentralization. And the reason we keep talking about decentralization is because of security. You really want to make sure that the transactions that you say are valid actually are valid. Rollups still uh, leverage all of the built-in security and decentralization mechanisms of the main network, of the Ether network. So let's say you've got a rollup. It's called Loopring, maybe. It's a totally different token. It's still going to live. And I don't know if Loopring lives on the Ether network. I think it does. But these rollups live on top of the Ether network. And James can talk about what that means in terms of layer two. Then you've got side chains, which are basically not connected to the ether network in terms of security. What they'll do is they will actually have their own blockchain mechanism. You know, they'll they'll use proof of stake. Some of these are already using proof of stake. Some of them are just gonna say, hey, look, you know, the worst ones are like, yeah, we don't care, you're valid. Some of them are gonna have all sorts of crazy mechanisms. And then every so often there's a way for them to uh, transact back to the mainnet, to the ether network to show that, you know, hey, look, everything that happened on the side here, you can send it over to ether and it's all good. A lot of the blockchain, a lot of the side chains, which are actually really, they're, they're really good. Don't get me wrong. Like a lot of them are um, using consensus mechanisms that are really, really fast. So you can use those to send things over to Ether. Now, these are two important concepts because most of the layer two solutions, and James, I'll let you talk about what layer two means. Most of the layer two solutions are leveraging the idea of a rollup or leveraging the idea of a side chain. So, uh, James, you've mentioned this this phrase a lot. Layer two. Um, why don't you just uh, before I you know before we transition, um, you know I'll kick it back to you if you want to talk about rollups and sidechains, go for it. Otherwise, I'll let you take a take a stab at introducing layer two. Nah, I think it's you know rollups and sidechains going to go into layer two and and what it is. So you know Ethereum is a blockchain. You know it's a D. You know it's a you know DeFi ecosystem, or that was a one of the primary use cases in the beginning. But uh, Ethereum is a layer one solution. So it is the blockchain. Um, so when Ethereum is running into these scaling issues and the high gas fees, it created a need for a new solution. 
Um, some folks decided to work outside of the Ethereum ecosystem and create their own blockchains. But you know, when you think about that, it's it's very difficult to do because you need a network to ultimately um, you know, be able to decentralize um, and decentralize in a secure manner is probably a better way to say it. Um, so enter layer two. Um, and what this is, are these are blockchains built on top of Ethereum. Um, they're protocols uh, that help solve some of these issues and, and using a variety of different ways. There's some that use sidechains or some that use rollups, um, but ultimately, you know, a lot of projects weren't waiting for Ethereum 2.0 to come out. A lot of them were in the works well before Ethereum 2 was even a thing. Um, so what layer twos are, and, and the example I mentioned previously with Immutable X, is Immutable X is built on top of Ethereum to ultimately provide a way to, you know, still use the security of the Ethereum network, but instead of, you know, it being multiple transactions, you make one transaction to get into the layer two, um, which is its own network in a way, um, and then you're able to transact in the layer two at, you know, there's varying benefits across platforms, um, but, you know, usually lower fees, uh, faster transactions um, with, you know, remaining the security uh, to an extent of the Ethereum network. Um, but that said, not every layer two is equal. And what's actually happening is there's like focus layer two. So for example, Immutable X is going to focus on NFTs and particularly yeah. uh, playing card NFTs, if I remember correctly. And then there's Polygon, which is a completely different layer two. Um, they do a lot in gaming is a lot of the primary use cases. Um, and then you have, you know, even different, you know, there's NAMI, which I mentioned last week, which is a layer two built on top of Ethereum that provides instant fi finality via their state pool technology, low latency, um, as well as predictable fees to a T where you know exactly what the fee will be. And this is to get institutional investors on. But what I'm trying to get at is there's, you know, there hasn't been a silver bullet to solve, you know, the Ethereum issue, even with the layer two solution. Um, so there, there's a lot of different opportunities. You know, one I've been hearing about a lot, I'm not as familiar with it, but I've heard a lot of great things about Avalanche. Um, yeah. Shanif, you know, any thoughts on Avalanche? You know, is it something you've come across? It, it, it is. And what's funny is I just, uh, I saw today Coinbase opened up trading on Avalanche. So I bought it and maybe I bought it at the high because it's like at its peak right now. This is a uh, November 16, 2021. And it's like at 99.50. But Avalanche, um, as I was, you know, as we were, we do a lot of research for these podcasts. So as I was researching Avalanche for this podcast, I heard just a lot of excitement around it. It is, um, it's a layer two solution. And I don't remember what, what mechanism it is. I think what it does is it, um, I think it uses proof of stake, but I don't remember exactly. And I think it might also use, uh, okay, it is. Um, I think it might use channel technology. One thing I forgot to mention is channels are a way for using kind of like side chains where in order, as James mentioned, in order to quote unquote, open a channel, um, you send a transaction to the side chain, then you and any number of parties can, can, can transact and then in order to send that back to the mainnet, you close the channel with a second transaction. And so um, Avalanche, if I remember correctly, is either a channel-based system or a roll-up-based system. It's a layer two system. And people are really excited about it because the way, the way it transacts, I think you can get transactions done at something like 60,000 transactions a second or, or more. At least this is what they claim. What's interesting about today's ecosystem is there's all of these competing solutions that are saying, hey, look, we're going to be this, we're going to be that. You've heard the term Ethereum killer, like, you know, the thing that's going to take over Ether. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of really interesting projects that are going on right now. 
It's a little bit hard to cut through all of them, um, but what we'll do on this podcast is we'll keep you guys posted as these things progress and we'll let you know kind of how they're, how they're going. Um, and so really like we just talked a lot about layer two and how these things are helping. Ultimately what they all are are different strategies and technologies for reducing the amount of load on the primary blockchain on the main net, whether you're using ether or something else and uh, splitting the load or reducing the load. So hopefully that made sense for you all. And today we are gonna give James his spotlight and he's gonna be able to jump into Polkadot. And really we're just gonna dive a little bit deeper into Polkadot right now and talk about why that's also an interesting solution for scalability. So James, take it away. Moment I've been waiting for it and I've been prepping for <laughs> for, for years now. Uh, so there are there are a lot of different, you know, so-called Ethereum killers in the market. There's Cardano, there's Solana, there's uh, uh, Polkadot. Um, but it's a term that gets tossed around quite a bit. And it always comes into, you know, it comes to the train of thought is that, you know, is there going to be one ring to rule them all? In my opinion, no. There's no way one ring can move mm -hmm. them all because none of them, no chain so far has proven that they're able to hit the mass adoption of Web2, which is the globe. Um, so it, there's a lot, it, we're in the nascent stages. This is like, you know, you almost think about it as like the first time that internet became a thing and someone sent an email yeah. for the first time. Oh, that's what it's gonna be, but it became so much more. So, you know, through my research and, you know, I, I came across Polkadot. And, you know, one of the things I liked about this project is that people were talking about it, but people weren't talking about it in the places where you catch the attention of like the everyday investor. It wasn't all over Reddit. It wasn't all over Twitter, but it came across and, you know, research. And I'm like, okay, like, you know, you hear about Cardano everywhere. It's like, like you, you walk yeah. outside and there's like someone talking about Cardano and I get it, but it's some, I've read something once where the more that someone is, the louder founding teams are about their project, the more worried you should be that it isn't going to be what they say it is because, it's, you know, these are, you know, it's technology, these are engineers and, you know, the best engineers I know, they, they put their work where their mouth is and they build a killer solution and people use it because of that. So I always get wary when you see crypto projects, you know, advertising and do all these things because, you know, what, what, what do you have to hide? Um, I digress because that's a hot take. I don't have as much data to back that up. That's just, that's my intuition radar. So Polkadot was, you know, when I came across it, I started to get really interesting in proof of stake because the idea of earning, you know, from earning passive income, um, you know, from your tokens was really interesting. So that was actually the first proof of stake token I got into. Um, and, you know, I started really diving into it. And, you know, one of the things, obviously, that they have Gavin Wood on their board, or, you know, he's the, you know, founder. Um, it was funded by the Web3 Foundation. But Polkadot, you know, they, they went out to, you know, if you think about it, and someone explained to me this one time about what Polkadot is. You know, Ethereum is a city. Bitcoin is a city. Cardano is a city. You know, Polkadot isn't a city. Polkadot is the highways and, you know, networks or, you know, the, the transportation ecosystem that connects everything together. And Polkadot, what it is, it's, you know, a chain that allow, it provides the ability to bridge any asset. Um, it doesn't even have to be a crypto onto the Polkadot relay chain. So Polkadot is very different. Polkadot is actually a layer zero solution um, because the main utility of the Polkadot token is there's three, there's three activities. Uh, it's for validation, uh, governance, and then bonding. Um, and what bonding is, is a you know, mechanism for, 
this is a whole podcast in and of itself. So I'm trying to, to piggyback. But the, so pretty much what Polkadot is, it has a very specific purpose, um, is that it is going to launch uh, about 100 parachains. So Polkadot is a relay chain that provides the security of a network. The security structure is actually very, very different. It's, it's decentralized, but it's decentralized to a point where folks can get comfortable with it, where they have an 11 person council that is elected, but they, it's not they can make any decision that they want, is their goal is to make sure that no noise is getting through in referendums um, and that they're able to weed out malicious behavior. They're not able to make these drastic changes, um, but they're the ones who pose the referendums um, and the thing that I really liked about Polkadot is every token holder or crypto holder is able to vote on, you know, any referendum. Um, so in a way, in and of itself, it is a DAO um, because it is a community driven nice. ecosystem. Um, and but the thing is, is similar to Ethereum, there's there's a lot of needs to be a, a validator on the network. You have to have 24-7 up, uh, uptime as well as a, it's a big financial commitment. So they have a system of, I believe it's seven validators where any token holder, which is myself, I'm not keeping that network up for 24 seven, I can hardly keep my internet running 24 seven, is, you know, you nominate a validator. And by nominating, what you're doing is you're providing your tokens to be part of the validation process, but you have to trust them to the point measures above that they're going to act correctly. They're going to act in, you know, good faith. Uh, they're going to not be fraudulent. So you don't slash your tokens, um, but it is built on the proof of stake ecosystem. Um, but the difference between Polkadot and, you know, Ethereum is that to be able to lease a spot um, on Polkadot, a parachain, so uh, those relay chains that exist, is there's only 102 exist to start. I believe it's going to scale more than that. But you need to have uh, Polkadot holders bond as part of a crowd loan process or crowdfunding process to be able to lease a chain. So these chains, like once you go on, it's not that you have that forever, which I think is different with Ethereum. Once you're, you know, once a chain is there, it's there forever. Polkadot, they lease out their parachains. So they're going through this process right now where, you know, folks are bringing their projects to market. The first one that's probably going to win is Akala, which is the DeFi ecosystem. It's a decentralized exchange that'll exist on Polkadot. But holders have to, stake their tokens, uh, two-year period is what they're looking for. And in return, what you receive is you receive the tokens of the ecosystem as like a reward. Um, but the good part about it is two years from now, you get your Polkadot back after their lease is up. Um, but Polkadot is a parachain technology and how this helps solve some of the issues that we mentioned before, you know, and I'll break it up into different areas is, you know, one of the issues with Ethereum is proof of work, bad for the climate. Also very high gas fees um, or transaction fees, uh, as well as, you know, scalability is ultimately, you know, how much can the network handle? So Polkadot helps solve this actually by sharding. Um, they have a hundred parachains and what these parachains are able to do is they're able to validate transactions in parallel. Um, so instead of it being, you know, a conveyor belt of one, next, next, it's, you know, transactions split across hundreds of chains which allows them to validate them much faster. And I, I don't know exactly what the numbers are. They're pretty low, I guess, when it comes to, or how many transactions you get a second, but it's significant. Um, but Polkadot, in a way, it's a utility because it provides the ability to bridge other assets. So there are projects going in that are gonna bridge ecosystems. So there's gonna be a bridge to Ethereum. There's gonna be a bridge to Bitcoin that allow you to use those assets uh, within Polkadot. But the real reason why I, you know, I'm so bullish on Polkadot is these parachains, once they are, you know, 
once they are, I guess, bonded and win the parachain slot, they instantly have access to Polkadot security. So, you know, projects that are coming new to market, they don't need to build up, you know, that, that network, that ecosystem to provide security. You're automatically going to have it from day one because it's part of the Polkadot parent uh, security. So you're getting that really secure ecosystem to validate transactions, um, you know, right from the get-go. And, you know, what that allows is trustless sharing of information across parent chains. So, you know, think about this as in this example I read online, and let's take this completely non-financial, nothing to do with DeFi. Let's say I'm applying for a job. Um, you know, I've worked with Shanif in the past. So let's say when Shanif was hiring me, he needed to prove that I had a college degree. So, you know, what Polkadot allows folks to do is share data from a private blockchain um, in a public way. So, you know, let's say there's a you know, college that's using it as records of all the students who went there. And then, you know, Shanif needs to validate that. He pings the network, and in a trustless way, they're able to verify that I, in fact, have a degree. Um, no information has to be shared. This is this could be a public to a private network, but it opens up the ability to speak, to you know, cross apps and share information, which is very difficult to do today um, on Ethereum. You know, with these apps can really, in a way, talk to each other. So there's you know one of the limitations of DeFi we talked about. So you, for the most part, you have to over collateralize to get a loan. There is no yeah. credit checking solution next. With Polkadot, that's actually something that is possible because there's already identity projects that are going on there. The next step is to have a credit, you know, check type product. So in a decentralized manner, without having to share any data, um, these projects are able to speak to each other and grab that and use it. So that's why I, I really do think Polkadot is Web3 and going to be one of the major solutions. But even when he says, I never want, I'm not an Ethereum killer. We're not an Ethereum killer. We're a part of Ethereum because one of the major projects is Moonbeam uh, or Moon River is what that does is that links Polkadot to Ethereum so that they're able to pull in any smart contract data into Polkadot to be used in, in their, um, their ecosystem. And everything is built on the Polkadot relay chain. But it, interestingly enough, is Polkadot doesn't have smart contract ability built into it right off the bat out of the box. There's actually projects that are going for parachain slots that will have the smart contract capabilities, which I thought was very interesting because I thought from the get go yeah. that it would have, it would be, you know, he wrote the smart chain code. So I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. so this has got to be, it's got to be in it, but it, that's actually not part of it. It's going to be provided through other services. Um, but the, the use cases are limitless. You know, Polkadot allows, you know, a broker to pretty much exist like an investment advisor where you're able to pull in your Bitcoin, you're able to pull in your Ethereum and house it all in Polkadot because it's able to bridge those assets into the ecosystem. And this Polkadot's gonna be able to speak outside of the ecosystem as well, pulling real world data. And one of the tokens that came across recently was uh, IOTEX, IOTEX, mm. but it's the internet of things blockchain where it securely, uh, it keeps all the data secure. They're like security cameras and all the data is secured on the blockchain. Cause so it's like fully decentralized. So you can't just access it or anything. But I was like, wow, that's a really interesting use case, but it's pulling in real world data into the metaverse. And that's where, you know, I, I really just, the more I read into it, the more bullish I get. And I think I did, I could always do a better job talking back so I could talk about it forever. But Polkadot, in my opinion, is, you know, a way to, to provide scalability um, as well as the governance structure provides it to not just be a black box of the internet, which, you know, in a way Ethereum is where it's, you know, various developers that, you know, really interested in it. Mm -hmm. Everyone has a voice. In fact, I, I'm in their discord 
everyone had a voice on the branding. You every it went to a referendum on what logo should we use and do anyone want to participate? So it really truly is this ecosystem. Uh, and side note, it's one of the highest held altcoins by institutions. So that tells me, okay, you know, who are usually uh, in the know um, institutions. They're always usually pretty big and it's something that I like to follow. And the fact that there are fewer validators provides the ability for folks to not think that this is just some black box. It's like the trust, the trust of a community into something. Um, and it's proof of stake. So you earn on top of, you know, your staking tokens. And when, oh, this is the beauty of parachains. When you bond, you get a liquid um, polka dot back. So it's not like you're use it, losing that asset for, you know, two years. You can just take that and go back and stake it and then come back in two years when you get your tokens back, which is, it's really fascinating. And it, and it completely, you know, opens up the system. Uh, but, you know, good old uh, United States, we're not technically allowed to participate in the crowd loan process because it's technically a security. Um, but that's why VPNs exist. <laughs> no legal so, advice is being offered in this case. No, are, no legal we, we... <laughs> or investment advice is being offered in this case. But it truly, it, it's really fascinating because it's built to scale and, you know, it, it helps solve a lot of the issues when it comes to predictability, gas fees, transactions, as well as not being a walled off garden. Because really Ethereum is a walled off garden. You know, you can't really get anything. Uh, it, it, it could speak within the ecosystem to a certain extent, but it's not able to pull in everything else. And that's why things like uh, Chainlink exists, you know, oracles to pull in data, but it's. It's really, in my opinion, it's going to be one of the big use cases where it, there's so many, it brings non-DeFi non use cases um, mm. to the ecosystem. And then another key part of it is that the user doesn't have to always be the one paying the fees. The projects can cover the fees themselves. So the UI and UX can be very different. So you might not have to go through this, you know, this weird process of, okay, I'm super interested in this project. Let me take my, you know, the way it exists is you take your Ethereum, you then go to a decentralized exchange, then you move it to the token. You then use that token to go into the D app. And then that's what the, D, the token you'll use throughout it. Polkadot allows for some base functionality. We don't necessarily need to do that first. You know, in a way, a project can, you know, front that in a way and whatever mechanism or economical sense that, or at whatever economic way that makes sense. Um, but it allows for a different UI that or user experience that isn't necessarily um, with as many steps. Cause I, I don't know, like, I think uh, a designer's nightmare is <laughs> the blockchain UX of having to go, okay, let me move Ethereum over here. Let me switch it over. It's, it's all over the place and it can be very confusing. Um, so that was just another, you know, area of polka dot, but I think it, it, it helps, you know, solve a lot of the issues without sacrificing decentralization, um, as well as it provides the ability, you know, to have AML and, uh, AML and KYC built into it which, and I think Gavin Wood said it himself, is that, you know, that's going to be, that's going to be here, you know, maybe by the end of the year, potentially earlier. I know the, the, uh, the infrastructure builds and DeFi stuff in it. So it's something that, you know, in a way, every, everyone needs their cut. Uh, everyone wants their taxes as well as everyone's going to make sure there's no money laundering going on. So, you know, you're, it's going to be an uphill battle to fight against that. And there's always going to be people going and, and needing these secure networks. But if you shut one down, another one will open up and you just won't know about it until it reaches a critical mass. So it, it helps bridge that gap where it, it kind of introduces this new web. And they actually did a, not, I will stop after this because I can go on forever, 
but they had the Web3 Foundation did a sustainability study versus Web2 platforms like Amazon, Apple, um, Google, and they compared that versus sustainability of Polkadot. And they found that Polkadot would be more sustainable over time um, because of, of the economics that exist. Because you can't, you can't satisfy everything um, you know, with a token because there's always trade-offs that you have to make. You know, if a token doesn't have value, then, you know, what is the, what is the security aspect of it? You don't care if it gets slashed. So ultimately, it has to have a value. It has to have utility. And the three-tiered utility system has been, you know, very well received. But, you know, this is a project that is worth about $40 billion today um, with now just going live. Uh, I think the first parachain auction started on the 13th. So this is something that has quietly built their assets to 40 billion or an a or i guess AUM when we talk about a market cap of 40 billion without even anyone using the network yet um and they have a big treasury that is going to help facilitate projects um treasury is again another thing we could probably cover in another podcast even though we did kind of cover it dows um but it really is fascinating um and I, it's it's truly a technology that will help bridge the gap in my opinion for um, you know, how the, the new web will structure with decentralization. So go research Polkadot people. There's some interesting D-O-T. I will say the first time I was telling people like, oh, I just bought a lot of Polkadot. They're like, what did you just say? Like Polkadot? And I'm like, I, I hear what you're saying, but it's fine. Like it, it is. The real. names, the names in crypto are a little bit out there, but well, uh, my favorite are hedge fund names. Like what street is outside? Like uh, <laughs> I Port Imperial Capital. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the utility is there. There's definitely stuff going on in this world that uh, is fascinating. And that's why we started this whole thing. I, I probably have to go and look at Polkadot myself. I do own it. Um, I've gotten into the bad habit of buying tokens sometimes where I don't really know what they're going to do. And that's one of the reasons we also want, I also wanted to start a DeFi so I could start yes. figuring out what it is that I'm holding. Um, but I have, I have some weird things as I'm sure you probably <laughs> do as well. I literally saw, I saw IOT blockchain is like, bye. <laughs> Interesting. It's so easy <laughs> it, these days. It's so easy. So easy. And, and, and everyone has their opinions. Like everyone, I have a lot of friends yeah. that are in finance are all like, Algorand. Algorand is the future. It's the thing I'm like, I've never heard that before, but like I heard it from five people all in kind of the same train of thought. I'm like, okay, I need exposure to this thesis because this is what they're thinking. And then there's, you know, the, you know, the Ethereum's, you know, the fanboys like you on and I'm a big polka dot guy. <laughs> you know, it just is what it is. We all, it's like, it, it's, and, you know, it's different flavors, it's, different strokes. It's for different funny. Flavors. It's true. It's funny because there's probably more more Bitcoin fanboys out there than anything else, and that's one of the, the, the coins we don't really talk about that much on this on this podcast. But uh, there's and a only lot of- penetrated by two percent, two percent of investable assets are in Bitcoin. It's it's so, hardly in so if you think about crazy. it from a statistical standpoint, it is unreally underarmed. So that's just in and of itself, and that's why a lot of there's a lot of supply issues. Another podcast in and of itself on exchanges. So mm-hmm. a big thesis going into the year end is actually a supply shock than anything. Um, is or su- Yeah, supply shock. Is sh- shock the opposite of glut when there's like not a lot of supply? I don't know. That's a nuance oh of words. Oh boy. Not I a, didn't prepare for not this. A, yeah, my brain, isn't, my brain isn't working. Not a lot of supply where it's actually affecting exchanges and they're like thinking about different things as well as the yeah. um, taproot upgrade, which is pretty interesting, which might even be worth a podcast in and of itself. Cool. 
Well, I think we've kind of covered scalability to the extent that we can here in November 2021. Um, we'll definitely keep you all posted as different projects come out and a different different things are happening. Um, but appreciate everybody sticking with us through this. Hopefully it's interesting. And if you are like, these guys don't know what the heck they're saying, give us, give us feedback, give us ideas, give us suggestions. We are here to learn. And hopefully as we learn, we can teach. So uh, James, I think we're good to, to call it a day. What do you think? I agree. But before we go, make sure that you subscribe, that you subscribe, not only via our email, because we are going to be sending out more blog content. Um, you know, we want to make sure that we're not just doing a weekly podcast. Our goal is to help all the time. Um, so we're going to get a better cadence going, but definitely hit that Apple, uh, Spotify, almost said Shopify. It, it, too many sh- if eyes out there, the, Spot- <laughs> the Spotify podcast, subscribe, listen, and do give us feedback more critical, the better, because we do we're also provide value. That's right. We're also now on YouTube. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. And obviously our home base is always going to be bfized.com. So we are looking forward to talking to you guys. Oh, we're also on Discord. So come by, say hi, and um, let's build, let's let's keep this going. Uh, so I think we're going to sign off now. We'll keep you guys posted on the next topic. We've got a blog post coming out soon on uh, decentralized finance. And we're looking forward to talking to you guys next week. Thanks, everyone. Have a great week, Thanks, everyone. James. Thanks, Shanif. Talk, talk to you all soon. Week. Take care. Bye. Bye now.